welcome to the first ever extended cut interview on the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Now, we just hit our first goal on Patreon last week, and we had put that when we reached our first goal, we would start releasing one extended cut per month to patrons at the $10 or above tier. But what is that extended cut, you ask? Well, You may or may not know this already, but when I interview our experts, we set aside a full half hour to talk. Our editor, Frank, takes out the best 15 minutes to put in the episode, but sometimes we go on a bunch of fun tangents or get into nitty-gritty details, and I always wish I could play you the full conversation. So now, that's what we're going to do. This week, we are revisiting the interview from... Episode 42, Brownfields and Superfund Sites with Dr. Lemire Tehran. That episode is our second most downloaded all time, and I really enjoyed our conversation, so I hope you do too. If you're not a patron already, head to patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin, because not only do you get merch, bonus content, and a shout-out at the end of the show, but if you're in the $10 tier or above, you will get to hear the first-ever patron-only cut on Monday. So if you enjoy this extended cut today, now's the time. Get on Patreon. I promise it's really cheap. It helps grow the show, and we work really hard to give you cool stuff and make it worthwhile. So with that, here's my conversation about brownfields and superfund sites with Dr. Lemire Tehran. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Lemire Tehran, an assistant professor of environmental studies at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Dr. Tehran, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Ethan. So you've covered a wide range of topics in your research exploring environmental justice and climate justice in a few different ways. So to start, could you just give us an overview of some of your research interests and what issues have stood out to you? Absolutely. My research is all about inequality, conflict, and empowerment. And it just so happens the main manifestations of those uh, iterate themselves in environmental justice, questions related to energy justice, energy inequality, and climate change. A little bit more specifically, I'm very concerned about the advance of climate change and uh, what that's going to do in terms of the mobilization of legacy pollution. I also think deeply on issues related to energy inequality and energy justice. That ranges everything where are or what's the future of community solar going to look like to insulation for homes in the part of the country I live in, which is the Northeast. And we're going to dive into a lot of this. I want to start with the mobility of legacy pollutants, because one of the recent papers you co-authored was on the idea of a toxics mobility inventory. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that means and how that can be useful. Yeah, well, if you think about extreme weather, particularly in coastal Atlantic states, Gulf Coast, um, really globally, if you think about the events of extreme weather and climate change phenomena, such as superstorms, sea level rise, these are going to be events, and they already have been events that have really uh, mobilized really uh, harmful threats in our environments. And when I'm talking about threats in our environments, I'm thinking about things like legacy pollution, like I said, Think about your national priority list sites, many of which, hundreds of which are in flood-prone areas and also brownfields, 
concentrated animal feeding operations. And it's pretty straightforward why extreme weather events would spread toxins from, say, a brownfield or a Superfund site into the community where they're located. But I was surprised to see the degree to which some sites are more susceptible to toxins spreading than other sites. So are those susceptibility differences purely due to their geographical location where different areas experience different extreme weather? Or is there additionally something inherent about certain types of toxic sites that can lead them to spread easier? Yeah, well, there's a lot of variation. Some have to do with low-lying areas. Think about a relatively flat state, relatively low-lying state like Florida. So that's going to be part of the equation. Others have to do with the mere proliferation of hazardous sites. You can think about a state like North Carolina, which has thousands of concentrated animal feeding operations. But then you also have to be cognizant of the individual chemistries of specific sites. So not every heavy metal is going to be mobilized the same. So there are a variety of factors. And that's why what we did was we developed an inventory or a template for stakeholders to think about these in very complex ways. And the study also looked at variables of race and income as they pertain to people's proximity to brownfields and Superfund sites. And seeing the risk associated with living near these sites, it's really concerning that low-income and minority communities are disproportionately exposed to these hazards. So why are these sites disproportionately exposed? Why did the sites end up in these communities? I think you're asking a really important question. So this is environmental justice 101. When you think about locally unwanted land uses and the race to the bottom, oftentimes communities of color, particularly uh, Black folks, also low-income Americans, locally unwanted land uses oftentimes are cited in these communities. So we have to be very cognizant when we're thinking about enforcement of environmental laws, when thinking about protections, who's going to be most vulnerable to the mobilization of hazardous threats. Well, it's gonna be people who live in communities where these threats reside. And whether we're talking about, as I said before, CAFOs, you can think about the whole slew of human health consequences that have been associated uh, with these facilities. You can think about brownfields. There are so many brownfields in our society, we don't even know how many there are, but we do know that these things are disproportionately in communities of color. So we always must be mindful of if Black folks, Native communities have heightened proximity to these things, then how are we going to engage in activity to make sure that those communities aren't going to suffer the harm, the double harm, A, harm from climate change, but B, the threats that are being exposed from dangerous facilities. And there's kind of two issues within that, because there's the issue of hazardous facilities, whether it be coal plants, natural gas plants, petrochemicals being disproportionately in these communities. Then there's also the issue of which sites are getting cleaned up and which sites aren't getting cleaned up. Do you think that it's a mix of both issues contributing here? Do you think one or the other is a larger factor in this disproportionate exposure? Yeah, absolutely. When you think about the, let's just talk about Superfund sites or national priority list sites for a second. When you think historically how sites have been prioritized in terms of cleanup, sites that are in majority white neighborhoods, these sites not only historically have been cleaned up faster, but the level of remediation goes a lot deeper in these communities. So what does that tell us? If you're in a black community, Latino, Latina community, not only is enforcement not going to be as consequential in your community historically, but the level of enforcement isn't going to go as deep. So that's certainly a factor. 
And there are other things as well. When you think about enforcement, you have to address a legacy of communication, environmental communication, a legacy of mistrust that oftentimes is pervasive due to historic inequality in relation to environmental enforcement. So I think that both of those things have to factor in into how we move forward to remediate these problems. And this issue of toxics mobility has certainly become a lot more real in recent years as hurricane seasons have gotten worse, Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Florence, etc. Could you speak a bit to how communities like these have been specifically impacted by toxic mobility as these events have increased? Absolutely. So in addition, and we don't even have to, before we look at the scale of hurricanes, you can think about the number one, the most numerable type of natural disaster, and we'll put natural disasters in quotations because there's certainly a human hand, a human element, but think about something like flooding, which is the most abundant type of natural disaster. And that is in terms of the proliferation, that's in terms of death toll. So if we think about that for a second, certainly analysis has shown that even basic flooding events has uh, not just shown the potential, but has actually spread toxic material, harmful materials, things that range from animal feeding operations, materials that are in your basement or materials that are in your garage. These events have shown a long history of mobilizing toxic threats. And unfortunately, a lot of times critical facilities, and when I'm talking about critical facilities, we're thinking about things like hospitals, schools, playgrounds, critical facilities have shown to have been in the pathway of this proliferation of mobilization. That calculus remains true for superstorms. And we think about vulnerability to superstorms and hurricanes. Who are your most vulnerable Americans? Who are your most vulnerable people globally? Typically, it's going to be marginalized racial communities. Typically, it's going to be marginalized low-income communities. These are households and communities Many times there may be transportation limitations, which pose difficulties, which disallow folks to evacuate. There may be other reasons why people can't evacuate. A lot of times these communities are disproportionately people who can't leave due to connections with being first responders, uh, whether they work for the local municipality, whether they are EMT workers, firefighters, et cetera. Absolutely. And to your point on flooding, I've been struck by this week just reading about what's going on in Tennessee right now where they're having record floods that they've never seen before. And I think it really goes to show we think of a lot of these extreme weather events as being coastal, but Tennessee's very far inland and are experiencing these things. So have you been struck at all by seeing just how far these events can spread? So I did my postdoctoral work at Florida A&M University. Shout out to FAMU, HBCU in Florida, obviously. And my work was funded. It was a grant that was funded by NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So with that being said, take a look at NOAA's. Every year they come out with this billion dollar disaster map. And in concert with what you just said, take a look at these maps in recent years. These billion dollar disasters are not just coastal phenomena. You'll see Many of these disasters, these billion plus dollar disasters happening in the the so-called heartlands or the flyover country. So when you think about how extreme weather is going to cause the middle of the country to pay a toll, it's not just a coastal, you know, an Atlantic coast or Pacific coast phenomena. Absolutely. And I think that one of the striking things to me about reading about your toxics mobility research is that it shows the intersection between 
climate justice and environmental justice issues as they pertain to hazardous waste sites, which are two of the biggest environmental justice topics. So could you speak a bit to how you see those two being intersected and going off each other? Yeah, not just intersections between climate justice, energy justice, and environmental justice. These are things uh, you can't talk about environmental justice without realizing climate and energy components, just like you can't talk about environmental justice without talking about racial justice. So when we think about the most profound problems of the 21st century moving forward, the most remarkable problems are environmental challenges. They are going to be related to climate change, but you have to realize though that climate change problems are going to inform other environmental problems and environmental problems are going to inform climate change. So when you think about resource scarcity, typically may be seen as an environmental problem, Well, resource scarcity can create some alternative mechanisms for fueling our homes, and that can cause a climate change problem. That's going to lead or bleed into public health problems. So when we think about disparities, I think it'd be very wise for us to think about coupling these things and not necessarily looking at them in a silo type fashion. And you've written a lot too about energy justice. And of course, these toxic waste sites originate from certain operations in a region. So we did an episode on natural gas compressors a while back and saw they're disproportionately in environmental justice communities. And the same can be said for a lot of energy sources. So when we think about these plants getting shut down with the renewable energy transition, obviously that's a step in the right direction, but what needs to happen to be sure that these areas are also safe from the toxins that might be left behind from those operations? With any energy source, whether you're talking about fossil fuels, whether you're talking about renewable energy, we need to do a better job with life cycle analysis. We need to do a better job with social life cycle assessment and analysis. So when you're thinking about the facility that you just mentioned, we can't just design a facility and say, okay, well, it's giving energy to this number of households or this number of plants over X number of years we have to think a little bit more holistically. So when we're talking about life cycle assessment, we need to be asking questions. What is the imprint of that facility? What is the imprint of that technology from extraction all the way to retirement? And if you don't get that question in relation to retirement, right, then you don't have a very savvy or sophisticated way of understanding energy futures and energy use. In the same ways that we need to look at fossil fuels in this respect, we need to do that for renewable energy from cradle to grave. But we also need to start asking some questions about social life cycle assessments. Who are the workers who work in these facilities? When you think about retirement of a facility and where waste goes, well, who are going to be the workers responsible for retiring that waste? And are they disproportionately exposed to harm? And if they are, are they aware of that harm? Are they armed with proper equipment, et cetera? So like I said, when we're thinking about energy systems, let's make sure we're doing so in a comprehensive fashion. And a lot of people have suggested that the current economic setup of the fossil fuel industry is not something to be replicated with the growing renewable energy sector. I'm wondering what improvements do you see that could be made to promote more social justice in energy? So right off, when we think about renewable energy, it has the potential, not inherently, but it has the the potential to be democratized in a manner 
in which fossil fuel driven energy, large scale fossil fuel energy never can be. So when you think about a proposition or when you think about the growth of renewable energy, specifically solar, you can do solar on very small, very neighborhood or even household scales. And when you think about small is beautiful or when you think about more democratized scales, more community driven scales, that's going to give you a certain level of durability. That's going to give you a level of resilience against disaster that large scale grid systems, large scale fossil fuel driven systems can never give you. Yeah, for sure. And thinking about just what happened this year in Texas with the energy grid going down, we see how important resilience is. And I know that one of the challenges we see talking about community solar is in some cities, it could stay in the whole region and others it couldn't. So how do you, obviously you can put up some rooftop solar in the city and then bring in some from outside the city, but I'm curious if you could speak to how diversify where the energy is coming from and make sure that that is done in an equitable way. So part of that energy democracy and energy just thinking, certainly rooftop solar, that should be an option, but community scale solar where power is generated away from rooftops, that should be an option. And you also have to think about, well, typically, who's going to put solar rays or solar panels on a rooftop? It's going to be a person that owns a property. So when you're thinking about the proliferation of that specific technology, you have to ask some deep questions. Well, how do non-property owners fit into this conversation? How can they be a meaningful part of this energy transition? So that's why it's very important for governments, state, local governments, to be working actively with communities, solar companies, and property owners, uh, rental property owners, to make sure that non-property owners have entree to energy alternatives or to renewable energy alternatives. So that's part of the equation. And then just to go back to something I was speaking on a little bit earlier, it's not just a technology from a technology standpoint that, okay, we'll invest in geothermal, we'll invest in windmills, or we'll invest in tidal turbines or solar panels. We have to do a better job in making sure that households are fortified, that households have insulation, that households have adequate windows uh, that are going to provide a significant cost savings for energy insecure and low income households to begin with. You also mentioned there can be improvements made on the worker side, and obviously the renewable sector is a huge growth sector in terms of jobs. So could you speak more to what improvements you think could be made there? Improvements in quite a few areas over the status quo, fossil fuel, energy regime. So number one, worker safety. Uh, That needs to be a part of the conversation just because you work in the renewable energy industry doesn't mean that it's inherently safe. So you want to make sure that people have adequate training. You also want to make sure that in the energy transition, a lot of people who are associated with the fossil fuel energy system, that these folks are being retrained to work uh, within the renewable energy economy. Maybe you should begin with thinking about, well, which communities have been longest underserved by economic growth, have been longest underserved due to racial and economic marginalization, And you want to make sure that those groups are adequately having access, adequately being trained 
in green job technologies, promote entrepreneurship within these communities to make sure that they have access to the so-called green wave. And this has to be a lot more sophisticated than just basic installation. It has to be a lot more sophisticated than we'll give you a voucher to put these technologies on your house. We need to, once again, if we're thinking about the life cycle of renewable energy, we wanna make sure that historically marginalized communities have access to all aspects of the renewable energy economy. Absolutely. So I think we've covered a lot of different issues and I'm curious thinking about just given how many factors go into them, it can be a little overwhelming to think what the next steps are to improve these issues. So looking back to something like tactics mobility, what actions can be taken to improve the situation if we're going to think about the hierarchy of how we address toxic mobilization, that hierarchy is going to start with communication and trust from stakeholders or in between stakeholders, governments, facility owners and operators. But even before that, we need to have a better prioritization of threat sites. What sites are going to be most prone to flooding? What sites are going to be most prone to natural disasters? And those need to be at the apex of sites that are remediated. We need to think about what communities have acute vulnerabilities due to proximity to not just hazardous sites, but also proximity to climate change and extreme weather-related events. We need to think about how environmental justice populations are situated within these changing conditions. When you think about communities that have a Superfund site or Brownfield, we know that these are environmental justice and or marginalized communities. So we need to put them at the front of the conversation for remediation. And then finally, we can never forget about what are the ramifications here for emergency responders? If we're expecting men and women to respond to hazardous events, we need to make sure that they're fully aware and that they are equipped with the appropriate equipment to make sure that they're safe when they're responding to emergency events of this nature. And as sites are being identified for cleanups, I know obviously governments have limited resources and they often have to pick, we're gonna fund to clean up this site and this site, and we can't do that site. And that can get into issues too, where certain regions might have more political influence and are able to get their site cleanup cleaned up, which can lead to inequalities. So how do we tamper those forces? Well, you have to get a lot better with enforcement than you have historically done, which a lot of times has economic and racial implications when you're thinking about the how the remediation of sites has been enforced. So to answer your question, history matters. And also geography and topography matters. If we think about historically, the communities that have been underserved by environmental protection and enforcement, these communities should be at the top of the list in being serviced by enforcement and protection moving forward. And then you actually have to look at the nature of threats and the nature of the threat should also prioritize how you are going about uh, cleaning up sites. But before you even get into site cleanup, we just need to do a better job with uh, precaution. We know that we have over a thousand Superfund sites in this country right now. 
Like I said, we have innumerable brownfields, so many, we don't know how many there are. So we need to do a lot better job with precaution in the absence of uh, scientifically verifiable information. There are certain activities, there are certain industrial activities that are gonna have to be taken off the table until you can prove as an actor that what you're doing is safe in not just the ecologies, but also amongst human communities. And we see the same issue with hurricane cleanups and other natural disaster cleanups too, where white communities get cleaned faster than black and Latino communities, wealthier communities get cleaned faster than poorer communities. That's especially concerning when you have communities like in Texas and Louisiana that are just getting hit and hit and hit every single year. How do we better prioritize where we allocate our resources for natural disaster cleanups? So I think that's an excellent question. Priority needs to take in historical considerations, who lives in low-lying areas, who's most vulnerable to shocks, and by most vulnerable to shocks, we're talking about households that are living in communities that are living on the economic margins, communities without adequate transportation and relocation capacity. These are going to be some of the things that should inform how you go about remediation, but how you go about making communities whole again. And then just to build on that historic aspect, a lot of times what you're seeing, go back 15, 16 years ago to Hurricane Katrina, as the Gulf Coast has rebounded, we know that black communities in the Gulf Coast haven't rebounded at the same rate as the rest of the Southeast or the rest of the Gulf Coast. There are people who think about a city like New Orleans, which the uh, socioeconomic composition of that city has changed dramatically over the last 15 years as a direct consequence of Hurricane Katrina. So when we're thinking about how that city's uh, development moving forward into the future, we have to think how can we make those folks who had to leave, who had to evacuate, who may never return to the Gulf Coast, how can we make those communities whole again? And that's when you start talking about things like restorative justice. So it's not just about short term, we're going to put a bandaid on a problem. How can you make communities whole that have a historic relationship of racial inequality, but also there are some near term conditions that are disallowing those households and communities from being whole? I think we've covered a lot, but is there anything else you want to add? I would like to thank you for your time and talking about what I deem to be some very consequential issues. So if you have any more that you'd like to discuss, just let me know. And I enjoyed my time with you today. Well, do, Dr. Turan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, my friend. That does it for this week's Extended Cut. Thanks again to our first group of patrons for getting us to this milestone. And remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, now is the time to get on Patreon. Patreon.com slash The Sweaty Penguin. We will have another Extended Cut just for patrons on Monday, and then new Extended Cuts once a month on Patreon moving forward. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.